0: My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen due to what's been called by historians as the Second Great Awakening. And some of you are like, oh, here we go. Just stay with me, okay. You hired me, right? This is the kinds of sermons that you're going to get. You've had it for four years. Let's do a bunch more. The 19th century was a hotbed of revivalistic fervor in many parts of the United States, particularly in the New England area. And there are many different Christian sects that formed and broke away from each other. And they wound up forming these increasingly splintered groups and outright non-Christian cults. You had uh, Christians like the stone campbellite Restorationists to the Millerites. And out of the Millerites came uh, the non-Christian group, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the quasi-Christian Seventh-day Adventists, out of which sprang the Davidian uh, cults the impulse to separate from established Christian groups was running high in, in that era. And different leaders in established denominations as well as lay people began seeing things in scripture that other people seemed to have missed. And this led them down the path to, I guess, shall we say, interesting places. When I was prepping for this, I was reminded of um, one such founder of, uh, of, a, of someone who started off as a Christian, but later found their way out, splintering from their Congregationalist church and forming um, a non-Christian group that I'll talk about in a second. Uh, this woman was named uh, Mary Baker Eddy, and she was friends with the founder of what came to be known as the New Thought Optimism Movement. His name was Phineas Quimby, and that sort of exists today uh, in really rubbish books. Has anybody ever seen the book The Secret, uh, like in the bookstore? I know it's, it's, it's very old, but it still kind of pops up from time to time. They made a movie about it. Um, the idea is, of The Secret is it, it teaches you how to manifest something that you want. Right? And you see this in different ways in popular media. Like if you really want this, speak the right words and have the right attitude, and somehow the universe will make it happen for you. That has its basis in in this movement, which was called New Thought Optimism. And that influenced some Christian groups as well, uh, including people like Mary Baker Eddy. And she wound up writing a book called Science and Health, uh, which is now called Science and Health with the Key to the Scriptures. And this book is foundational for her religion, and it's usually read in tandem with the Bible. And the reason why I mention this today, brothers and sisters, is because... Eddie and the founders of of these other movements is that they all believed that they had the key. They had that one thing that's going to unlock the secrets of the Bible. And if you could unlock those secrets of the Bible, this then could change everything. And this pops up all the time. If you don't believe me, go on YouTube and, look, and type in Bible prophecy and you will see some crazy outlandish things. Another example would be um, years ago, years and years and years ago. This shows how dated I am. Did anybody remember this book called The Bible Code? It was written by a gentleman who he claimed using a mathematical program you could extrapolate from Hebrew letters secret hidden messages in the Bible that predicted things like um, 9-11 and, uh, and, and, and other events. But many people think that the Bible is this, is this esoteric thing that if you have the right key you can unlock hidden secrets inside it. Or people will say, God has given me the revelation to understand the hard parts of Scripture. And that should give us pause, brothers and sisters. That's dangerous. When anyone ever starts proclaiming that they really got the goods and everyone should come to them, that should make us, that's a red flag. And the reason why I mention all of this today is from in the Gospel, we actually see Jesus giving the apostles the key to the scriptures a key that never ceases to be the key and is superior to anything else out there and that's the title of my sermon today the key to the scriptures we see this in Luke chapter 24 that, that our gospel reading from this morning that Cindy read where Jesus says to his disciples well it says that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures And he said to them, It is written that Christ should suffer on the third day rise, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed at his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. So when Jesus appears here in the Gospel of Luke to his apostles, it frightens them because they think that a spirit has appeared. They think he's like a disembodied spirit. And in response, Jesus does two things. He invites them to touch his hands and his feet, And he points out to them, spirits don't have flesh and bones. It's truly the same Jesus standing in their midst. But even though he is the same Jesus, there is something different about his body. The second thing Jesus does is he asks them for food. And he eats a piece of broiled fish. To show, I'm not a disembodied spirit. I'm actually really here. And I love how when the disciples are afraid, Jesus doesn't just tell them, relax, or peace be with you. He invites them. It, it makes me think, <laughs> most of us are married in here, I think, or, or engaged, or, or, or thinking about maybe possibly being married one day. This applies to you, too. Have you ever had a, a, a fight with your significant other and one of you gets really angry and then you tell the other one, hey, calm down. That always works, right? That always works. <laughs> right? It doesn't work, and it doesn't work with kids either, right? So if Isaac is being rambunctious and he's getting really worked up and really angry, and I'm like, listen to me, buddy, no, I don't want to. And I say, hey, calm down. He'll look at me and go, no, and he'll get even worse because you're de-escalating. And I love how Jesus doesn't come in there while they're frightened and say, calm down, you guys, and then just leave it there. He invites them to touch him and to eat in front of them. He invites them to touch his body and to eat a meal. In a way, I like to see this as Jesus giving them a way to encounter Scripture. Scripture to touch scripture, to be invited into a life of reading, and they're going to be preaching from scripture, because most of these men were not educated. There's a, a, a portion in the, I think it's in the book of Acts, where it says that they're like, who are these guys? Where do they get this wisdom from? And then the tagline is, and they knew that they had been with Jesus. Jesus. Probably the best educated of all of Jesus' followers was one who came later, St. Paul, we know, was highly educated. But, Matthew would, uh, but, but Peter and John, we know, were, were fishermen. And one of the, the apostles we know was at one time a former zealot who were violent insurrectionists trying to overthrow Rome. So not a lot of necessity for these guys to learn to read and study the Torah. If you're a fisherman, you need to know how to fix your nets, how to fix your boats, where's the right fishing spots, what time of year do we go, how many people do we bring. That's what you need to study. Not a lot of time for reading and storing uh, and, and memorizing the law. But Jesus sets all things into perspective for them. He says this, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So this is shorthand, basically, for Jesus saying the entire Old Testament, because they didn't call it the Old Testament back then. Luke then says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we see the ability of being able to read and understand the scriptures is a divine gift given to the apostles directly by Jesus. It would follow, then, that what they taught and what they spread is the basis for how we understand the faith today. Like we confess in the Nicene Creed, the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. St. Bede said, It is perfectly evident that the church is one all of, is one, all its saints and that the faith of all the chosen is the same. Of those who preceded and who followed his coming in the flesh, we are saved through his incarnation, passion, and resurrection that have been accomplished. Jesus is giving them the key to reading and understanding and interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. There's no New Testament yet, right? Because it hasn't been written. And so here's the key, right? The three-part key. The tripartite key. The triforce, if you want to call it that. Number one, the first part of the key is, it is written. Jesus begins with, it is written. So what he's about to tell them is not disconnected from the revelation given through the Hebrew scriptures. The Old Testament Still, has something to teach. And remember, at the time of the apostles, there's no New Testament. So when Peter or Paul or John, when they get up to preach to their, to their, to their churches, they don't say, okay, everybody, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to get deep today. They would have been like, what's Revelation? No, they're going to get up and they'll say, all right, the reading from Isaiah, the reading from the Psalms. But... The revelation has been given to them, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament has been under intense scrutiny and fire lately. One of the biggest Christian ministers in the world did a whole series about how Christians need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament because the Old Testament has some really horrible stories in it. And that's absolutely true. We can't minimize that. But he said we need to unhitch from the Old Testament because that will actually keep people from becoming Christians. And we see popular Christian pastors and musicians and authors have publicly left the faith, and many of them will cite, wow, these tough parts of the Old Testament, they were really tough. And then to add to that, these passages in the Old Testament get filtered through the lens of, of things like postmodernism and deconstruction, leaving us with nothing but a collection of texts that have no link to one another, and no overarching theme. But what we see here is very different. Jesus gives himself as the key. The meta-narrative that gives scripture its cohesive unity, even the tough parts. And this key was written long before he became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. The second part of the key is that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again. The next part of the key tells exactly what is written. Jesus' is suffering and resurrection. So when we call Jesus the Christ, this is a reference, this is a title to the Anointed One, the Messiah. It is not, as some would have you believe, infinite, pure awareness that animated the body of Yeshua and the entire cosmos. That's a direct quote, by the way. I won't tell you where, because it's awful. <laughs> There's been a ton of very bad theology seeking to unmoor from what is written and what has been handed down to us about who Jesus was, or who he is, I should say. And the sad thing is a lot of these ideas have already been tested and left behind by the church. The scriptures point to the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, who will be killed and then rise again. For example, right, we, like seeing this in the scriptures, when we read the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah is pointing us towards something. People will read the story of Jonah and they'll say, the story of Jonah is not to be believed or not true because nobody can survive three days in the belly of, 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 of a big fish. That's just stupid. And the, the focus of that text becomes, well, can people survive in the belly of a fish? Was it a fish or was it a whale? Well, the scripture says fish, was it a whale? Who knows? Is there a fish big enough to swallow a person whole and swim around with them at those depths? Who knows? And this is the point. Because when you read the language in Jonah, the language in Jonah is meant to show that Jonah isn't alive in the belly of a fish as it swims around. It's imagery for Jonah has died. He's died and he's being taken down to Shale, he's, Or Hades, if you want to call it. He's being taken to the realm of the dead. And what does he do when he's in Shale? By the way, how long is he there in the belly of the fish, AKA Shale? Three days, three nights. And then he prays from Shale, from the place of death, and God answers and spits him back out on the land, bringing him, granting him life. I cannot make it any more explicit than that. Who died, (laughs) was dead for three days and nights, and then rose again from the dead? Who descended into Hades? Who descended to Sheol? Who descended to the realm of the dead? And to all those who were captive and in prison, led them out? Jesus. It's not about can a person live in the belly of a fish for three days? It's about somebody dying being separated from God in death, crying out to God, pointing us towards Christ. Because what does Jesus even say on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The third part of the key is repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. The third part of the key is what results from the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. And it is the proclamation That it is because of Jesus' work of providing forgiveness through repentance that that is now offered to all nations. I've said this before, and it's an awful quote misattributed to Francis of Assisi. Always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. This sounds deep and it sounds profound, but Francis most likely never said it, and even if he did, it is not true. There's a grain of truth to it, that we do need to live our lives as Christians in a way that demonstrates Christ. Yes. But the gospel, the good news, glad tidings, this is something that is proclaimed. And we know, and I mentioned this already, that the gospel wasn't just used by the Christians, it was taken by the Christians. And it was part of, of, it was all wrapped around in the conquering king, conquering Caesar being announced. There's something called the Priene Inscription, okay, in the city of of, of Priene, and it says this, quote, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, right, if you read your Bible, you know who Augustus was. He's the one that taxed the world, which made Mary and Joseph go to, to, to Bethlehem. Augustus, whom providence filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might... End war and arrange all things since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, that was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. That word, the good tidings, is Evangelion, which is the exact same word when you read the New Testament that says the gospel or the good news. When that was inscribed in the city of Prain, nobody ever said, you know what? You really should let your life testify to the gospel of the coming of our Savior, Caesar Augustus. You really need to live in a way that magnifies Caesar Augustus. No, <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. The, the good news is tidings, it's something that is to be proclaimed. And yes, we do proclaim the gospel in a sense by how we live our lives. Yes, I'm not denying that. But the gospel is something to be told, it is something to be proclaimed. St. Paul, I think he says in Romans, how will they know if no one tells them? The thing that has brought hostility between us and God, sin and death, has been dealt with by Jesus. And that repentance is available to everyone everywhere. And that repentance brings forgiveness and restoration. Now we're going to talk a little bit about ignorance and lawlessness. We heard this read in the text from, that we heard earlier from the first epistle of John. In the Acts reading, St. Peter comments how even though what happened to Jesus was attested to, the, to, to, to him in the scriptures... The religious leaders acted out of ignorance. And ignorance can be tricky because it can either be willful ignorance or intentional ignorance. Or just a lack of knowledge and understanding. But the religious leaders Peter is preaching to here in in Acts. Sorry, lawlessness is the John reading, the Acts is this one, sorry. But the religious leaders Peter is preaching to, he says you were ignorant, but willfully so. So in a way that's kind of worse. But but in framing it this way, he reaches out to them still saying, you were willfully ignorant. But the prophets spoke of this. And guess what? They said that this was going to happen. And then using the key to scripture, he ties in what they did and what happened with the life and ministry of Jesus. He ties it all back into Abraham and Moses and all of these figures in their history. Ignorance blinds us to the work of God. It blinds us to seeing Jesus for who he truly is. It blinds people into taking Jesus and turning him into something he's not. Ignorance causes people to look for things in the scripture that scripture does not attest to. Ignorance causes people to use computer programs to sift through biblical languages to see if they can pull out letters to create a pattern to, to find ancient secret prophecies. Ignorance blinds us. And Jesus has delivered us from that. Now, in, in 1 John, there's this mention of lawlessness, about those who practice sin practice lawlessness. So those who practice sinning, it says in John, 1 John, this is something ongoing. He's not talking about, you know, you, you, you tripped and you got angry and, you know, you kicked a squirrel or something like that. He's talking about ongoing willful sin this is lawlessness. This is someone who, as Acumenus says, a person who clings to evil and becomes a worker of evil on an ongoing basis. Right? So lawlessness comes from the word anomia, which means without law. And this should make us think of, of the law, of the Torah. Right? So the nations who were not God's people, they did not have the Torah. St. Paul talks about this at the beginning of Romans. So their actions were debased and had no constraints. So the law that God gives Israel acts as a guide. It acts as a way for them to manage their sin, to expose the sin and to manage that so God could dwell among them, right? Because the picture we see in the Exodus and in Jerusalem, you have the temple or the tabernacle and the presence of God around it and the people around the presence of God. The Torah was a way for them to manage sin so the people could safely dwell within the presence of a holy God. It's not that God is looking for ways to punish them and to do bad things to them when they mess up. It's for their safety. Because when what is holy comes into conflict, or comes, when sin, I should say, comes into the presence of what is holy, what is going to give way? Not what is holy. But lawlessness. Lawlessness. St. John has this in view, right? Those who go on sinning, are like those who had no law to manage and to constrain sin. So the key to understanding the scriptures, as we saw, is Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, and returning. And that he brings the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of all nations to God. And so this, in turn, then, brothers and sisters, helps us as we interact with scripture too. Far too many people read into Scripture political or public policy points that they want to see. We see this on the left, and we see this on the right. Too many people read into Scripture political or public policy points that they want. Too many people read into the Scripture the acceptance of things that Scripture describes as sin. But scripture, brothers and sisters, is an invitation from God. It's an invitation for us to see and to hear the risen Christ. To see and hear the risen Christ when that word is proclaimed. To see and hear the risen Christ when we sit there and we read scripture at home in our quiet time, in our personal devotional time and you join us here for church on Sunday and hear the gospel, the epistle, and the Old Testament read because scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing, which is why we read scripture out loud. This is our way of seeing and hearing Christ. When somebody preaches the gospel and they, they're preaching out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, wherever, it's as if Christ is being presented before you. And communion, the Eucharist, is our way of touching Christ and eating Christ, right? When the apostles, of Christ first appears to them, he invites them to touch him and he eats with them. Scripture is an invitation. When we read and we understand the Bible through the key of Jesus Christ when we read and understand Scripture through the key of Jesus Christ, that's important, that's why I repeated it, when we do that, it keeps us from reading into Scripture our personal bullet points, our personal political bullet points, our personal theological bullet points. This is how we primarily read and understand the Bible. And when we do that, it guards us from blindness, it guards us from ignorance, and it guards us from lawlessness. We need to read, particularly the Old Testament, through the key of Jesus Christ. And to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash Church Repair Fund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, UCC, or on our website, ZionstoneUCC.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you.